Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. We've got Alex back for part two of a series on opioids that we started just a few days ago. Now, Alex, you're at the end of your first fourth year rotation. That's actually the last rotation of your third year in a sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, tell me how it feels to be done with your first fourth year rotation. Oh, it feels good. It's, it feels like the end is in sight and the light at the end of the tunnel is there. So. You still have your uh, first year of residency, so that light at the end of the tunnel might be a train. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we talked a little bit yesterday about uh, the direction you're going in medicine, which is uh, primary care. But one of the things that you're very intrigued by is the use of medications to assist patients in recovery from opioids. Uh, we talked a little bit about the extent of the opioid crisis, and it might be uh, a good summary is um, physicians are the chief vector in that condition. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of factors at play, but physicians were a part of it. Now, how did you uh, learn about buprenorphine? We're going to talk about buprenorphine in a couple of different forms, suboxone, sublocade, uh, suboxone films. And tell me a little bit about how you learned about this molecule. So I think I first learned about it in the first two years of med school. Um, we covered analgesics and opiates and then also, you know, in a pretty quick succession learned about the dangers of opiates and buprenorphine came up in that discussion and teaching about molecules that can be used to help with opioid dependence. You came into further contact with that uh, with one of your preceptors, and I think we did a shout out to Dr. Bushnell? Uh, just Bush. Dr. Dr. Bush. Bush. Dr. Bush at the last uh, podcast. Feel free to do that again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I, I then, after learning about it in the didactic years of school, um, I was able to learn clinically about it when I did a rotation with Dr. Bush. Um, he works, he, he owns his own clinic called Kick the Habit in American Fork, and he also works down here in Provo at the Wasatch Behavioral uh, Health Clinic. And, um, and he, he used a generic, or a, I'm sorry, a brand form of buprenorphine called Sublocate primarily um, in helping people with opioid use disorder um, with their maintenance therapy for that illness. So we're going to talk a little bit about opioid use disorder and how we got to the point where sublocade seems like a pretty good option in treatment of opioid use disorder. Uh, what is opioid use disorder? Okay, so we kind of talked about it briefly in the previous podcast, but going into opioid use disorder, um, it's a ICD-10 code that you can use. Um, and if you look it up in the DSM-5, you'll come across, you know, 11 different diagnostic criterias. Um, rather than going through all 11 of those individually, I kind of like to summarize it in a sense that you really see opioid use disorder diagnosed in people that are having a really hard time managing, managing their cravings and specifically the time and investment that's putting into their opiate use. Um, so we kind of look at it as a diagnostic criteria of cravings um, in the sense that these cravings and use are interfering with occupational, social, recreational activities. They're very time-consuming. Um, 
they're, re they're being recurrently used when it's known to be physically and psychologically harmful and an inability to stop using is, is, um, is there. And then the idea of developing tolerance and withdrawal in the you know, successive use of opiates. In the past, there were two uh, different conditions that were captured in the misuse, what are now the misuse disorders. One was a dependence uh, diagnosis, one was an abuse diagnosis. My understanding of those was that the uh, dependence diagnosis spoke largely to the uh, physiological dependence and withdrawal symptoms, <clears throat> and the uh, abuse diagnosis spoke largely to the idea that there was an absence of those symptoms, but bad things happen to people while they use the substance. We uh, have a, uh, an activity for our third year medical students that you and I did not do, which is a list of songs with diagnostic uh, potential inside those songs. And we used to uh, have this song by Chumbawamba, I get drunk, or no, I, what is it? I get knocked down. I, I, I get up again, again and it's <laughs> in the context of drinking alcohol, right? Yeah. And bar fights uh, happen, uh, car accidents happen, um, a lot of bad things happen to some people who drink periodically but don't have withdrawal if they stop drinking, right? So, right. so there were some distinctions there. And I think the opiate use disorder and the other use disorders have tried to uh, <clears throat> take what was uh, an artificial distinction on some level, right? These are use disorders that create a lot of chaos in people's lives and have tried to capture all of those now in one larger diagnosis. As far as this goes, there's also uh, a difference in the severity of the use disorder. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so you can add a specifier to the diagnosis of either being mild, moderate, or severe. Mild being the presence of just two or three of those diagnostic criteria. Moderate being the presence of four or five, and then severe being the presence of six or more. Um, and I think this is interesting to denote these differences in mild, moderate, and severe, not in the extent to how, you know, problematic it is for the patient, but specifically for when certain medic medication-assisted therapies are indicated. For instance, sub Sublocade um, has the FDA approval and indication for being um, implemented when a patient fits into the moderate or severe categories or having four or more of those symptoms present. So you knew exactly where I was going. It was like you read my mind. <laughs> and if it's not clear at this point, the, uh, the direction of this podcast is about sublocade as a way to help people who are struggling with opioid dependence to be clean and sober, right? And they call that medication-assisted therapy. Why do they call it medication-assisted therapy? Yeah, we. I read a, an interesting article that was talking about um, this term, medication-assisted therapy, and, and why are we using this term that we don't use for any other chronic diseases, such as diabetes or kidney disease or heart disease, but we use it specifically for you know, substance use disorders. Um, and I think the idea is kind of, well, we have, you know, psychological therapies in the term in the sense of uh, therapy sessions and you know AA and NA programs but now we also need medications for this problem but in my opinion I think we can just refer to these as medications it's not a meta medication assisted therapy it's just a medication for a disease and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the FDA indication for sublocade in a moment uh, which I think is very fascinating uh, I want to go back 
to the origins of, quote, medication-assisted therapy <laughs> mm-hmm. and partial agonism. So you and I read different articles that uh, maybe comes to this question from different angles. So I read an article by a fellow named Martin, Dr. Martin, and he had been involved in some of the development of uh, partial antagonists uh, starting at least in the 1960s, as I recall. And the article I read was The History and Development of Mixed Opioids. Now, this is a fascinating article to me. If I understood the article correctly, it was the confusion caused by the different kinds of opioids that helped us understand partial antagonism and partial agonism. So let me tell the story if I can. Sure. Stop me if it gets boring, because I have this (laughs) tendency to be sort of like uh, pharmacology geekish. I'm a wannabe pharmacologist. So we go back to uh, 1915, and there's a a chemist named Pohl, P-O-H-L, who is uh, who made who who published an article that said essentially, "Hey, I'm making these allele A L L Y L compounds, and they stimulate respiration and they antagonize morphine." Mm-hmm. Right. So this is the very first uh, installment in the story of how Dr. Martin and his crew figured out, amongst others, figured out some of these really interesting questions about opioids and how they might be working, and molecules that might help us minimize opioids. Now, there was something really fascinating that happened about uh, 30 years later, 25 years later. Merck picked up on these allele compounds with something called uh, nalorphine, which could, quote, reverse morphine poisoning in man and could, quote, precipitate abstinence in morphine-dependent individuals. Now, to me, that's just stunning. So as far back as 1940, we had a molecule that uh, was the equivalent of naloxone, which can reverse uh, opioid intoxication, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe even uh, precipitate abstinence. Uh, in morphine defendant. Now, there's a couple of phrases that came up in this article that I think are important. The first is that and there are a number of opioid receptors, and they didn't know this at the time. So, so if you look at uh, work done in the 60s uh, by Martin, who was the author of this article, and uh, Gorodetsky, they said, hey, if you look at morphine, there's this very clear syndrome associated with morphine. It's different than some of the other opioids we're playing with. Mm-hmm. It causes itchy skin. It causes coasting. I have no idea what coasting is, by the way. And it also causes uh, soapboxing. Hmm. Uh, do you know what soapboxing is? I imagine it's standing on a soapbox and making <laughs> proclamations of some sort. <laughs> uh, pretty close. So the idea is that people became talkative. Sure. Uh, and this was different than cyclazine, uh, cyclazazine, which caused sleepiness, drunkenness, and ataxia. And this was different than nalorphine, which caused dysphoria. And that was the molecule we talked about before. So we now have three opioid molecules, and they all have these very different syndromes. Now, what else is interesting is depending on which molecules you added together, you might get different responses. So if you... Um, if we talked about adding nalorphine uh, to morphine, 
you could precipitate abstinence, which I think is the idea of inducing a withdrawal syndrome. Right. right? So, so some of these molecules acted at this spot. But, but then uh, Martin said, gosh, there was this group in 1956 that published this, uh, this paper that said you can, if you give low doses of nilorphine, then you have greater antagonism. But if you have high doses, then it's different. You don't precipitate that antagonism. And so they started saying, huh, well, maybe there's two receptors involved. Mm-hmm. And, and they couldn't sort this out. It wasn't easy. Yeah. And in fact, what they ended up having to do was go back and find uh, another uh, receptor that uh, caused even different problems, and that was the uh, cyclazosine. Uh, so they talk about the delta, the sigma, or I'm sorry, the mu, the sigma, and kappa kappa receptors and uh, how these different receptors had different outcomes and different ceilings and all sorts of different things. Now to make this even more challenging, they weren't looking at opioids, you know, thinking that there was one receptor. I mean, they started off with opiate one receptor, right? Right. And the idea was uh, bind the receptor and cause changes in breathing, respiration, and changes in pain. and so they weren't just working with that. They also had something really confusing, which was partial antagonism. So how did they mar- uh, measure partial antagonism at the time? Well, it wasn't through computer modeling with uh, big AI systems and, uh, what is it, deep deep, uh, deep thinking from Google's AI <laughs> right. uh, uh, quantum computer, right? It, it was, uh, they would look at the ceiling effects of suppression on a couple of different things like spinal reflexes or respiration or pupil size. They could actually look at pupil size right. and see uh, a linear response with molecules that had no uh, ceiling effect. And then with the partial antagonist, they started to see a ceiling effect or a, a slower onset and then a change in the curve rather than a linear uh, uh, linear response, right? Now, and I think those are would be partial agonists. Not partial antagonists, yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you. That's the correct language. Yeah. So partial agonism or inverse. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we'll stop there because yeah. we've had I this. I remember dis- learning this in med school and it was. I always thought, okay, if it's a partial agonist, it acts kind of like an antagonist because it's not giving the full effect as a full agonist. Yeah, and then there are inverse antagonists. So I think uh, one of the challenges we have is agonism versus antagonism versus partial activity at the receptor. So the take-home from uh, Martin was, um, hey, we figured out this really interesting story. And how the pharmacology plays out matters. So if you have a a mu receptor, which is morphine receptor, Mm -hmm. right, and you're antagonizing that, on any level, you have the possibility in somebody that is currently stable on opioids to induce a withdrawal syndrome very quickly. Correct. However, if you have somebody that is stable off opioids and you're binding to the mu receptor who is going through withdrawal, then you can stabilize the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And that's because the relative activity at the mu receptor is in a middle state between no activity and full activity, right? Okay. And, and so that becomes important for the way we talk about some of uh, the process going forward. Does that make, d- did I do okay with that? I think you did good, yeah. It's a very complex, <laughs> um, you know, pharmacokinetic situation and with all the different opioid receptors involved, it can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. So I think you did a good job. Thank you. So Martin, in 1979, 
is saying, by the way, we've got this buprenorphine molecule hanging out there. Yeah. That's 40 years ago, yeah. more than 40 years ago. And it looks like bup had been around a little while, and we'll call buprenorphine, buprenorphine, bup at times. You'll hear that mm -hmm. amongst the, uh, those in the know. The savvy. The savvy, <laughs> right, bup. Um, so in that context, we have now this idea that there might be differences in uh, pain, in respiration, in different kinds of aspects of, of uh, treatment with opioids. And a lot of the research, the way I read Martin's review article was, hey, we're trying to figure out how to separate out the um, dependence creating parts of pain treatment with opioids from the pain treatment part alone. And it yeah. looks like there might be some ways to do that, but it's pretty complicated and it hasn't been figured out yet. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the situation at that time, you know, you had the emergence of methadone clinics, and so there's a big push, you know, from political and societal pushes into let's get methadone clinics going. So you saw a lot of these kind of partial agonists, partial antagonists, or inverse antagonists get kind of pushed under the rug for a little bit because there was this idea, let's use methadone. Um, but I do think that the idea of buprenorphine has been around for, you know, half a century. Um, and it really wasn't until the opioid crisis took over in the late 1990s that it started re emerging as a potential treatment for opioid dependence. Methadone is a very good treatment for what appears to be heroin dependence. Largely, that was where this molecule was targeted. Yeah. There were problems associated with methadone. Um, where there was misuse of methadone in the community and it was largely, if I understood what I was reading, it was misuse by people who wanted to stay on heroin but then there were periods of time where they were not able to get heroin, they would use methadone and then go back to heroin. It didn't lead to, um, I'm not sure that the methadone clinic quite gave us everything we hoped for and in the process of being helpful it also created a few problems. Yeah, from what I read, it seemed like it seemed like methadone clinics, and they're they were kind of called um, uh, OPTs at the time. They were heavily regulated, so there was this pretty quick evidence of methadone can be misused and abused, and so they very quickly took methadone out of primary care clinics and they, you know, in installed them into these regulatory clinics called OPTs. Um, and I think methadone did a good job of somewhat curbing, you know, at the time there was this big emphasis on increased um, criminality, and so methadone did a good job, I think, for a little bit and maybe curbing that in the 80s, but it, it wasn't a long-lasting treatment. You and I talked about different types of opioid crises. Um, the waves. The waves, right. Yeah. And the, the most recent wave, I think one of the things I remember reading about when I received my waiver, and we'll talk about the waiver in a moment, mm -hmm. was that uh, there's a tremendous stigma associated with methadone treatment. And my impression is that quite often the people that I worked with on methadone, they were sedated. Um, there was a lot of sedation with methadone. It was a heavy opiate so to speak, it seemed to interfere with functioning in many ways. Whether I only saw exceptions to the rule or not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the idea with 
Suboxone was we can move this out of a stigmatized area into the privacy of a clinic and have better outcomes and more accessible treatment for everybody for treatment of opioid use disorder. Yeah, I was able to do a couple of shadowing opportunities at methadone clinics around Utah Valley on my rotation with Dr. Bush. And um, and we talked about that. There was this there was more of a stigma with methadone than there was with some of these newer agents such as buprenorphine. And um, and not to say that methadone didn't work for some people. There was For a lot people, of people. For a lot of people. Um, I think one of the distinctions, and we can probably get into this when we talk about buprenorphine, is methadone didn't have a ceiling effect. And so you'd see patients continually needing increased methadone doses, increased doses. And I think that's where it may be gotten to this, wow, they're being really sedated to try and curb their cravings. And so yeah. there, there wasn't a good ceiling effect that buprenorphine has. And I think we're saying not that uh, methadone was a failure. I think what we're saying is that methadone was an incomplete response. It's an incomplete answer. And uh, there's a search ongoing all the time to find something that's more effective in the treatment of opioid use disorder. Uh, And I think that brings us to the 2000 waiver. 2000, 2001? Yeah, 2000. 2000. Tell us about the uh, 2000 waiver, the the waiver that became available in, in that year. Yeah, so something called came out called the DATA 2000 waiver, and so DATA is an acronym that stands for, let me pull it up here, I'm never very good with acronyms, it's the... I'm going to guess Drug and Alcohol Treatment uh, Act of 2000. Let me see. It's a Drug Abuse Treatment Association. Oh, yeah. of 2000. Okay, of 2000. Um, so what happened in 2000 is practitioners could now apply for a waiver specifically to administer buprenorphine and prescribe buprenorphine. For opioid use disorder. For opioid use disorder. There was initially a 30-patient limit on that. That was then extended a few years later to 100 patients. Mm-hmm. I believe that 100-patient limit is still in effect. I'm not sure, but I remember seeing that change pretty early on in the 2000s. There might even be a waiver that allows people to treat more patients than the 100. And I think there's a pretty good reason for this. You and I have talked a number of times about one of the things you're passionate about, which is increasing access to treatment amongst all people for a number of things, not just opioid use. Um, Talk to me a little bit or, or tell me a little bit about what you read regarding access to treatment for opioid use disorder. Sure, yeah, so I think one of the things that's evident in a lot of this substance abuse treatment is access to treatment. Um, You know, apart from the stigmatization and the finances involved with it, it really kind of comes down to access and availability for a lot of these patients. Um, And you can see that as medications that were um, approved for treatment you know, started being approved throughout the 2000s, you saw increased prescriptions in those and increased uh, providers applying for the waiver. Um, But there's still some pretty significant disparity, especially in rural communities, um, which interestingly, I think are proportionately, if we look at rates, um, are some of the most heavily affected counties that deal with opioid use disorder. And so I think this is where the ability to move away from a methadone clinic into, you know, a prescriber of, say, buprenorphine in a rural community can have a pretty positive effect in a, in a county that doesn't have a lot of access. 
Suboxone is still probably not a complete answer. At least it wasn't when I was prescribing in 2005. There were a number of things I still worried about. For example, that uh, Suboxone was used to help ensure that um, our patients with opioid use disorder never went into withdrawals. In other words, it was maintaining mm -hmm. uh, misuse disorders or use disorders. Um, I was also worried at times that there was diversion when my patients were buying pills. They were then using those pills to uh, be able to sell those on, in the community. And I think what I understood was happening was that my patients would sell largely to adolescents who were uh, worried about withdrawing. They had become uh, dependent on OxyContin, which was the seemed to be the problematic molecule at the time when I was prescribing in St. George. And so they were looking for ways to come off of OxyContin without family figuring out that they had become dependent, right? But it looks like there's even more risk than that. Yeah, I think as we saw, once buprenorphine was, you know, approved to treat addiction, we saw the creation of, you had mentioned, Suboxone, which is a brand name for buprenorphine and naloxone formulation. And that originally came to market as just a tablet in 2002. And that was primarily the first use of buprenorphine. And I think from what I've read, it was it was pretty regularly misused. And kind of as you alluded to, um, there's some good papers out there that talk about, you know, Suboxone and another brand is Subutex. They were misused in a way that it wasn't necessarily for getting high. I mean, in some instances it was, but it was something that was stashed. So somebody that got the prescription would hold on to tablets in case they knew they were going to use and then needed something to hold them over until getting, you know, Oxycontin or heroin or whatever it may be. Um, and so there was a lot of misuse in that regard. And there was also a lot of safety concerns, um, one of them being that we now have you know, schedule two and schedule three molecules at home and the potential risk for children to get into them, um, especially with the tablet form and, you know, not being well secured at home led to a lot of accidental ingestions for for children. Even some deaths, according to one of the articles we're here. Yeah. And that's different than uh, methadone because with methadone to have patients in large part, patients had to show up every day for their methadone, right? They would get a bottle of a liquid, they had to drink it, it's hard to cheek, cheek liquid, so to right. speak. Yeah. It's hard to hide your use of a liquid, so the liquids would be drunk in the morning, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. ingested is probably a better word, mm -hmm. and then the patients would come back the next day, and depending on how well somebody did, they might be able to have pills uh, if they had shown long stability, periods of long stability on the medication, right? right? But but this was a change then that we were starting to put a lot more opioids into the houses and then we started seeing specific overdoses with the children. Yeah, and I mean another thing that emerged from Suboxone and Subutex tablets and then eventually sublingual films which just dissolved um, was the potential use to use it as in an intravenous route. And so the idea was, well, let's take buprenorphine and pair it with naloxone, which as you, most of you are probably third year students reading this, you know, naloxone or Narcan is used to halt an overdose. So they used naloxone in an attempt to have patients not use it intravenously. Um, but unfortunately, I think that some people were able to figure out a way to 
extract the buprenorphine from the naloxone and still use it intravenously. And I think that was still done. The, the other problem I saw was that people would come in and say, listen, I cannot tolerate the sub, suboxone, mm -hmm. which is the buprenorphine plus the naloxone. I can only take subutex, which is the buprenorphine alone, right? Right. And so they either got simply that, or apparently there are ways to separate out naltrexone, I'm sorry, naloxone, naloxone. from buprenorphine. And so uh, it's, it's important to remember, I think in this context, when we talk about morphine binding to the mu receptor and that euphoria with that, buprenorphine also binds to that receptor and causes elevation. It is like morphine with a ceiling effect mm -hmm. and perhaps not as potent in the creation of the euphoria, right? right? So so there's still this great ability of this molecule to have people feel immediately better. Every time I started uh, Suboxone in people that were having problems with opioid use disorder, they would tell me they felt better. So there's, there is a mu receptor activity that is morphine-like in nature. So, of course, it's going to be abusable, but it's not the first choice. Yeah. And I think that created a problem that I wasn't as aware of, right? And, and that is that um, there was an interesting study done by a doctor first, a PhD, I want to say in uh, New York State. And uh, they were working in treatment facilities, and the f they recruited uh, 14 what they called street pill sellers who had uh, bartered or used pills in the past to ask, hey, how is, how is Suboxone being uh, misused or Subutex? And I think uh, the name of the Suboxone films, so the pills were discontinued by Renkheiser Beckett mm -hmm. and replaced by the films. Yeah, that was in 2010. And that was in 2010, and so they were asking about both pill and film behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll go back to pill versus film in just a moment. Um, generally, I have very positive thoughts about Rankheiser Beckett, but it seemed like the film came along as the patent was wearing off on the Suboxone tablets, right? Right. Um, but they did make a compelling case that uh, there probably was a safety advantage for the film case. Uh, as opposed to the pills, um, that there was some reduction in child access. But again, it seemed a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was definitely, I think, a f financial element to that decision to switch from tablets to films. Um, but the films were, you know, they did some studies that show, showed that kids had a harder time accessing the actual film because they put it in a instead of being in a pill bottle, it was in a foil mechanism where you had to rip apart two pieces of foil and kids had a really hard time with that. Um, and additionally, you know, the films were tracked with a, a barcode so that the prescriber could track every single film that was dispensed pretty efficiently. Yeah, there were, there were some uh, barriers to misuse. I think they tried to make some, take some steps forward. Again, I, there are companies that I'm more circumspect about their behavior. Generally speaking, I feel like uh, uh, Rankheiser, Beckett Rankheiser, RBP, mm -hmm. right? That's the, the initials we see. I think generally speaking, they've taken on a project that is an underserved area and tried to provide a treatment. And uh, I think the studies that we'll look at in just a moment are well done. But the films, I, I just wasn't convinced that it was a step forward. Yeah. There was still risk of diversion, and so I think they tackled the, 
you know, the safety aspect to some degree with the films versus the tablets, but films could also be diverted and, and they could be broken apart or cut into fourths or whatever it may be so that the, um, the patient could still stash some of the film for later or dispense it on the streets or whatever it may be. So there was still that risk of diversion with the films. Yeah, I read uh, something in an article that talked about how once the film was on the tongue, you couldn't really spit the, the film back out. But I was thinking, yeah, I mean, that's if you're watching somebody take the film, but that's that's the problem with methadone. You're back in a methadone clinic at that point watching people put films on their on their tongue. Right. right. Yeah, and, and the idea, sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. The idea, you know, with, with buprenorphine products is you want to create um, a safe place for people to use buprenorphine. And the idea is that, well, maybe patients can use this product at home and that would increase retention and increase the use of the product rather than having to go to a methadone clinic every day. So I'm going to drop back into the study I was talking about just a moment ago with that aside that I meant to come to later, but yeah, you know, it happens. <laughs> um, the the buprenorphine... Um, use on the streets. So this, this study looked at, uh, interviewed, uh, as I mentioned, uh, 15, 16 people that were pills, street pill sellers. And uh, they, they summarized some data uh, before they talked about their findings. One was that uh, buprenorphine does have a sustained euphoria. And we talked about that with regards to mu activity, that mm -hmm. it's it has a ceiling effect, but it's acting in the same place as the mu receptor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they talked about the increase in emergency room visits associated with buprenorphine use between 2006 and 2010. It went up from uh, to about 20,000 ER visits over that uh, four or five year span. And they also noted how people find their pills uh, Seventy percent get them free from friends or relatives. Forty percent buy them from friends or relatives. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I looked at those numbers and I just thought, huh? Do, do you want the good relative that gives you the pills, or do you want the good relative that sells them to you and makes it harder for you to get them? I, right. Or do you want the good relative that doesn't give you access to their pills, yeah. right? Depends on who's asking the question. I yeah, think. I think so. <laughs> and interestingly, in third place, how do we get our pills Pills that are you know, misused? It comes from physicians, right? I mean, ultimately, it all comes from physicians. We are the right. vector, right? Yeah. Uh, and then um, I liked the way they said this, taking without asking 20, over 20% 20 of the time. I think that means stealing, but I'm not sure. Um, but I, I think the idea of destigmatizing is probably part of what's happening in the paper. And then only 16% of the people who said, here's how we get the pills, actually get them from a dealer. Mm -hmm. So if we take that into context, the, the 14 street pill sellers that uh, were talked to, there were a couple of comments that came out of that interview that I thought were telling. Uh, first is that buprenorphine is easily available on the streets. At the time the article was written, about 15 years ago, the pills would cost somewhere between $5 and $15 uh, for an 8 milligram tablet. Okay. Um, and again, I think that gets back to something I was talking about with uh, OxyContin in the last podcast, where the cost would be between $0.50 cents and $2 a milligram, depending on how adept you were at negotiating, right? Right. Um, and uh, it was interesting because these pill sellers talked about 
Suboxone, either the strips or the pills, being a gateway of sorts. They, they didn't talk about uh, young adults and adolescents who are trying to get off of other opioids. What they talked about were people showing up to find a drug for the weekend. They would get a buzz over the weekend and be very content. And because they were opioid naive, so to speak, or morphine naive, that ding on the, uh, on the mu receptor coming every couple of weekends was a good buzz and, and a, good, a good abuse use of right. these pills. And so, um, in a sense, it almost sounded like the author was making the case that this could then be a, a gateway drug for people to misuse opioids because the dealers, the pill street, the street pill sellers, I should say, um, were uh, then offering Oxycontin or whatever other opioid they had available for, uh, I, I think Oxy's less so, but other uh, shorter acting opioids. And, and generally speaking, the people that were called the weekend warriors liked the long acting mm -hmm. uh, Suboxone because it gave a persistent elevation or a persistent euphoria over the weekend that they were out you know, partying, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that kind of just shows how something that's well-intentioned, I mean, if you go back to the 1990s of treatment of pain with opioids can be misused. And if there's not, you know, enough regulation without overbearing regulation, you can see things like Suboxone, which is prescribed for medication-assisted therapy for opioid dependence, being a gateway drug to opioid dependence. So I don't think we had good data out of this article that it does lead to opioid use disorder or, or, or physiological dependence on opioids, which my experience is uh, buprenorphine does cause physiological dependence over time, right? You can't, yeah. e even coming off the low doses was very difficult for a lot of people, both for the emotional aspects as well as the uh, physiological aspects. Yeah. Um, so. I think the point that, by the way, a couple of other very interesting comments. Apparently there's an MRI industry out there where people can give you an MRI and change the data so that you can have an MRI report that shows that you have a physiological need for uh, some sort of opiate, right? Oh, so these geez. pill sellers are also selling, uh, show up with the, with the report. And I think that's very, very challenging yeah. and speaks to the need to check state registries for uh, use or purchase of pills or prescriptions through other physicians, check pharmacy res records, also get the records of injuries from the physician, right? So that yeah. there's a, a tighter chain between those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think a lot of, from what I've seen on my rotations, a lot of uh, primary care physicians um, and, ho and, hosp and hospitalists are using, you know, prescription drug maintenance reports or doppels or whatever you want to call them to really make sure that when they're thinking about prescribing an opiate, there's, they're not prescribing to somebody who is doctor shopping. And buying extra pills to sell on the street, those kinds of things, right. yeah. Uh, one of the things I read was that uh, the use of water for the strips for the suboxone strips. Did you read anything I'm about putting it? So I don't know if that was a way to separate the naltrex or the naloxone out from the suboxone or if it was an insufflation thing where uh, people would boil the water and, and uh, yeah. so pop, the, so to speak. The article think. that I read that did talk about ways to separate those two 
chemicals, buprenorphine and naloxone, actually didn't talk about how to do it on an ethical basis. They didn't want that information out there. So I'm not, I haven't heard about the, water, the use of water. Yeah, so I don't know what that is either. And I was thinking about this as we were going along about how we might be providing information to uh, people who could be listening on how to misuse the substances, but I hope not. I hope that largely what this does is, is informs physicians about the challenges of treating opioid use disorder in addition to the need, right? There's this yeah. very difficult line and we don't want to be the vector for the illness, we want to be the solution. Right? Yeah. And ultimately where we're gonna end up in this podcast, kind of concluding with sublocate, I think, is we're going in that direction of what's the best way that physicians can treat and help people with opioid use dependence in the safest way possible. Hence, supplicate, right? I think that was exactly the next thing on my bullet uh, pointed list over here to the right of, it's hidden right behind your laptop. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so supplicate. Supplicate, I think, is a reasonable response to some of the challenges that are still in play with the use of uh, buprenorphine, naloxone combination tablets and films. Yeah. So tell me about Sublocate. How did you become introduced to Sublocate specifically? So we talked about buprenorphine introduction, mm -hmm. but now tell me about Sublocate. Sure. So just to define it, Sublocate is the brand name of a extended release buprenorphine naloxone formulation. So it's similar to the tablets and films we've been talking about, but now it's a extended release injectable form that's actually used in some of the long-acting antipsychotic injectables that you use, like, you know, um, Respiridone and I think Zyprexa maybe. Olanzapine has a long-acting formulation. Um, Paliperidone has yeah. a couple of long-acting formulations. What I didn't see was how this long-acting formulation is made. Is it made in the microspheres or is it the crystal size? Um, any, any information on that? You know, Somehow I totally yeah, uh, missed I, that. There's a patented gel suspension that I'm trying to remember the name of. It starts with an A, but... Um, How about if we leave it at gel suspension, I think, uh, yeah. patented gel suspension? Maybe we pick that up yeah. in another podcast. And so what it is, is it's a gel suspension of buprenorphine um, and with naloxone in it um, that you inject into subcutaneous tissue that has a duration of 28 days. So it's a long-acting injectable form of buprenorphine that I think reduces some of the risks um, and uh, risks of diversion and risks of adverse reactions that we were seeing with the tablets and films um, that you don't see in the, in, in the injectable form. Um, my first introduction to Sublocade was with my rotation with Dr. Bush. I, hadn't, I don't think I had heard of it before then, um, and it was something that he was really excited about and, and often preferred because of its safety measures that a prescribing um, physician or nurse practitioner or PA could have the safety of providing maintenance therapy without the risk of their patients, you know, diverting the medications that they're prescribing. It's a tremendous difference, yeah. right? because somebody has to place the medication in you. you. There's never a time when the medications are in the hands of somebody who could potentially divert the medication, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, in that same vein, there were several articles that I read that the patients actually preferred the injectable 
patients do, uh, going along with the stigma, they don't like having to show up and, and get a, you know, ingest methadone in a clinic. They don't like having a physician kind of tracking how many films they're using. It adds to increased office visits. Um, and with an injectable medication, you can potentially have increased retention in these uh, maintenance therapies. Let's talk about the phase three trial article by uh, Dr. Haight. We, yeah. we uh, reviewed one of the phase, I, I don't know if there were more phase three studies. I saw one that was still on, uh, underway, but this one was published in 2019. So this, and when did, when did uh, Sublicade get the FDA approval, do you know? 2017. 2017, interesting. So uh, this is a phase three trial and I don't know why there would be a phase three trial after the Sublicade yeah. uh, authorization. Something that I'll have to go sort out in my mind yeah. a little bit after. Maybe that's when it was published was 2019, but the data is from... 2017. Yeah. Usually the, I thought the FDA was relying on the trials that were published for the FDA approvals. In any case, um, this trial by Dr. Haight was 36 centers, mm -hmm. uh, one over, over 1,100 people showed up to see if they met criteria for the trial. 665 started a two-week lead-in using the strips, the, um, the buprenorphine, um, naloxone strips, and 554 were randomized to either uh, a series of injections, um, sub-Q, mm -hmm. right? Not, not IM, so right. sub-Q. Uh, so 554 were randomized to a series of injections of either one of two doses of uh, buprenorphine slash naloxone or placebo. Yeah, and so what the, the actual treatment groups there, so if you go into the, the indications and the, do, the dosing um, indications, you can either use a 300 milligram dose or a 100 milligram dose. And what this study was looking at particularly is Initially, you start somebody on a 300 milligram dose for the first two doses. So for the first two months, they're on the 300 milligram dose. And so just, just to be really clear, day one, day 300 one. milligrams. Day yeah. 31, 300 milligrams. Day 91, it now goes to 100 milligrams, right? And the question was, correct. And, the and question, then it would stay at that every month. Sorry, and I keep yeah, interrupting yeah. you. Yeah, the question is, what's the difference between continuing somebody on the 300 milligram dose versus starting with the initial two months of 300 milligram doses and then going down to a 100 milligram dose. And there's some research going on with that and indications on how dependent is the person, um, does going down to the 100 milligram dose increase risk for cravings and, and withdrawal symptoms. And so that was kind of the aim of the study. And comparing it to placebo, does it have an effect? I liked this study a lot. This is a difficult study. Um, there are a lot of things that I thought went wrong with this study. Apparently one of the 36 centers did not comply with guidelines. And so in this study, they threw that data out for their analysis, but they also showed the analysis including that treatment center, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Uh, quite often we don't have data from like the what-ifs, right? A lot of times yeah. we're like looking at a study and going, well, did they throw it out because the data was bad? Or, right. And so they just said, hey, 
there were problems with compliance, we're not going to say more, here's the data the way we think it should be done, but here's the data if you think it should have been run the other way. Yeah, I think this study did a great job of saying, you know, here's our hypothesis, here are our endpoints, and here are all the things that we didn't expect, and we're going to portray them. Because that's what happens when you're when you're treating any disease or illness is things happen in the real world. But I think that's particularly true to treating addiction and dependence is there's there's a lot of fallout and there's there's a lot of things that come up that you don't expect or want to happen. But here's a study that shows okay what are some of the outcomes even though these things are happening. This study had a fairly complicated way of looking at the outcomes. They showed, by the way, um, going back to the dosing, I think there is there was something I read somewhere that essentially two to three nanomolecules per liter oh, yeah. was sufficient for effect, we think. And both these dosing regimens seem to keep people above that blood level, right? So so it's the data wasn't compelling for continuing 300 versus 100. Right. I can speak to that just for a second. So, yeah, that that's a it's a way that the, I think the the pharmaceutical companies have marketed buprenorphine in that they've made a distinction between if you're treating somebody in a, at a level of buprenorphine of 1, I think nanogram to milliliter it occupies 50% of the mu receptors, whereas if you're in the two to three nanogram to milliliter range, that's occupying 70%. And the difference that the pharmaceutical company presents is at 50%, you prevent withdrawal symptoms and the physiological side effects, and at 70%, you're blocking the subjective cravings is there. In, and in, in either case, and I'm glad you said nanograms because I think I said nanomolar, right? You got the numbers. Listen yeah. to Alex for the numbers. Uh, so both in both cases, they were above that 2 to 3 nanogram per, per mole, milliliter, milliliter yeah. uh, number that uh, I clearly can't remember correctly. Yeah, I mean... I have it in front of me. That's the only reason I know. <laughs> I think you knew that without it being in front of you. I'll give you kudos Thank for that. Thank you. Uh, so, so the outcomes were intention to treat, and I thought the outcomes were compelling for this medication over uh, therapy only, right? Yeah, over placebo. Mm -hmm. we, we pl so, so the treatment was the uh, sublocade injection and therapy mm -hmm. counseling versus counseling alone and a placebo injection. Correct. Now, 40% of the people, uh, so, so they went percent abstinence with uh, their outcome analysis. And this wasn't abstinence from opiates. This was abstinence from all substances. Yeah, I think a big part of these studies is, is using urine drug screens to make sure yeah, you can have self-reported use, but you also really want to be tracking urine drug screens. And so, yeah, this was abstinence from all substances. And the numbers are a little bit disheartening in that there is, so they did urine drug screens every time somebody walked into the door, and there were a lot of those, right? Yeah, we they had these for 300 people. For a long time. Yeah. Yeah, not, uh, I think closer to, well, 
by the end of the analysis, I think there was a lot of fallout. Yeah. But they were doing uh, analysis uh, of all of the people that stayed in, and it was weekly, and 40% of the people that were on the extended release, roughly, either one, stayed abstinent from all substances. That's pretty good. Yeah. Compared to placebo with therapy, which was? 5%. 5%. Yeah. So your number needed to treat? Was three. To improve abstinence was three, right? Yeah. Um, And I think that... Well, I might have that wrong, because it's not 40% of the people. Um, Actually, our NNTs are a little bit different. 60% of the people on... I want to do NNTs differently. So 60% of the people that were taking um, sublocade were abstinent greater than 80% of the time versus 2% Mm. of the people that were on placebo with therapy, right? And so actually um, your NNT at that point is 2, right, to have 80% abstinence. And and I think it was interesting, one of the other caveats of this study was they said, well, everybody's going to test this right off the bat. So the first four weeks we're going to do drug tests but we're not really counting it. We're not counting it for those that are on uh, the placebo. We're not counting it for those that are off the placebo. We're just, we know everybody's gonna test it, so that's not really where our treatment analysis is going to come in. We're going to start our analysis from month, from day 30, so to speak, on. And I think the numbers, if you look at the survival curves and if you look at the tests, so they actually show the the number of tests and the the study was very fascinating in, in that it showed Almost immediately, everybody looks like they wanted to test to see if what the drug did mm-hmm. and used with it. But then over time, there was this very solid core of about 40% of the people on this, in the treatment arms that really stopped using everything. They weren't using much of anything at that point. And then there were a lot of people that were still using cocaine and benzos that were on the sublocade. Um, but the difference between the sublocate arms and the placebo arms, the way I saw it, was that the placebo arm disappeared. They couldn't stay even in the study. They were all relapsed at that point. Yeah, the, the retention rate um, for the placebo, placebo group was, I think, 34%, whereas for both arms of the treatment groups, they're around 60%. It, it was, I mean, the dropout was terrible on the uh, placebo arm. Um, so... What are they, uh, anything else from that article that you wanted to point out? I, I just think it shows you, you know, we, we talk about, you know, how great MAT is and, you know, the use of it and hopefully the continued use of it and emergence of it in a primary care setting. And it's also uh, opioid and substance abuse addiction is also a very difficult thing to treat. And, you know, like most chronic diseases, um, you're going to see relapses, you're going to see declines, you're going to see morbidity and mortality. Um, and this this study, I think, does, does a good job of showing how important MAT is compared to placebo, but also that MAT isn't perfect. I mean, and there's, there's still a lot of relapses and a lot of pain and struggle with stu- substance dependence. This is a, it seems like this is a step forward in what we're doing and not a complete answer yet. Yeah, and I think the thing that I wanted to accomplish with this podcast is just show, I think, how important using long-acting injectables is, especially when we've set the stage of, we're trying to treat pain with opiates and they're being misused, and we're trying to treat opiate dependence with 
sublingual films and they're being misused. And now hopefully we have this injectable solution that really decreases the risk of being misused and diverted while still maintaining those same, and, e and hopefully even better treatment retention and you know, efficacy. True or false, this medication is not misusable. I think for the most part, you can never be 100% sure of the answer, but I'd say um, for the large part, it's not uh, misusable. Let's talk about the prescribing information, the PI, the FDA approval, okay. and I'm going to leave that question hanging out there for just a moment to think about. Uh, this is indicated for moderate to severe opioid use disorder, something we mentioned before, with counseling and psychosocial support. It is not FDA approved alone. Correct, yeah. You, you always want to have adjunctive therapy with this um, in the form of, of psychosocial therapy. Um, and also a big push from the, the Sublocade brand is that they really recommend providers to also prescribe naloxone with it um, because there is risk of, of overdosing still with buprenorphine. And so if you can have naloxone or Narcan um, prescribed, which is a really great movement going on in the U.S. to get naloxone in the homes of people and, you know, in paramedics' hands and also civilians' hands of really trying to reduce the risk of, of overdosing. Interestingly enough, I tried to go get uh, naloxone at the pharmacy and it was difficult. Was it? I thought, well, you know, I, I should probably do this. I work at a hospital. Um, I, you know, just because I don't know that my kids are, uh, just because I think my kids might not be addicted to opioids doesn't mean that they are not addicted to opioids, right? right. So, so for me, this was an issue of, hey, if I love somebody, I'm going to go figure out how to make this happen. And I couldn't make it happen. Yeah. So I don't think it's as easy as we thought, even though the, the laws in Utah allow for this. Yeah, and I, I think we'll see, you know, the, the areas of the U.S. that have been hit hardest are on the East Coast. And kind of as we talked about in the previous podcast, that spread is coming to the Western states. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see some pretty big advances in Utah and other surrounding Western states. I think we tackled this in a different podcast, but naloxone is now available in, in, uh, in Utah. Gotcha. And so but you had difficulties, but I had difficulties yeah. getting my hands on it, even though it should be freely available to anybody that wants it to be able to use in an emergency situation. I see. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that was the first thing off the list. It's interesting how uh, prominent the idea of, hey, consider giving naloxone tabs to your patients. It, it's interesting how prominent that was in the PI. I yeah. was impressed with that. Yeah, I was too. And, and the PI, the dosing indication is not for the 300 every month, like we talked about in the previous study, it is 300, 300, 100 consistently. And it looks like that still keeps that blood level high enough. Yeah, and another thing that we didn't really talk about either was that there is, um, there is an induction phase of using the films that you want to get somebody up to a 16 milligram dose. Um, it usually lasts about a week and you want to get somebody up to a 16 milligram dose of the sublingual film before you start them on the injection. And so that was one thing that we didn't really talk about. I think the idea is also that you want to make sure that somebody doesn't have an allergy to either of the items in the compound. Correct. Or over sedation or anything like that. Yep. Uh, the next thing on my checklist speaks to misuse. When you give the injection, one of your tasks is to check the abdomen 
for signs that the previous injection had been like woes out. Yeah, so um, I learned this when I was with Dr. Bush is one th- one style or pattern that he used was he actually did injections in a quadrant fashion and alternated. So if they received one injection in the left lower quadrant, the next month they receive it in the right lower quadrant, and he'd alternate in that in that fashion to avoid kind of oversaturating um, some subcutaneous tissue <laughs> with buprenorphine. And also to be able to look very clearly at what had happened in the previous quadrant, right? Right. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So uh, injection site for removal attempts. Examine injection site for removal attempts. Uh, considerations with this medication I thought were fascinating. Withdrawal with Suboxone, which is the brand name that I was familiar with, Mm -hmm. uh, buprenorphine and naloxone, was protracted. And it wasn't the the very painful immediate withdrawal syndrome that I have experienced when patients use Suboxone when they were not completely out of withdrawal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard that called truth serum. And it's a miserable experience for my patients that have taken the Suboxone too quickly. Um, when it's when the buprenorphine withdrawal is protracted, it's discomfort, but it's not that um, squirting, diarrhea, lay in the bathtub, um, feeling miserable kind of feeling that that we think about with an acute withdrawal. Right? This is right. more of a discomfort, and it's. It, it's a long withdrawal, but it looks like the withdrawal from uh, Supplicate could maybe be very long. Once you're started on this medication, you're on this medication. Correct, yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's, I think we alluded to it a little bit in the last podcast, but this is a, a chronic illness that needs maintenance therapy. You know, you could argue for life. And I think the idea behind this injectable medication is. This is something that you have to come to an agreement with the patient, like we're taking a big step here for continued maintenance therapy for years because it can stay in someone's system for over a year. I remember um, speaking with family members. Quite often family members would come with to the visits with my patients. I felt like the treatment was more effective because I had somebody who had an opioid use disorder that would often push them to say things that were not fully accurate, right? Yeah. And when I had a spouse there, they would be like nodding yes or no to the statements that were made, right? And I remember talking to one family and saying, okay, well, how long are we going to stay on this before you come off? And I, I I did this a couple of times before I caught on, right? The family members don't want their loved ones off of so, off of buprenorphine. Right. They, they bend down that pathway and there's a look of terror in their faces. So even though the original package inserts and or prescribing information for Suboxone talked about maintenance therapy with plans to come off of the, the therapy. My experience was nobody in the families wanted that. Yeah. Right? That was, by the time they were on Suboxone and by the time they were in a year and by the time they had seen me, this was not their first rodeo and they were hoping for anything that could give any sort of stability for the foreseeable future. I mean, dependence is unrelenting. So I think you see that. Uh, that re- I mean, from patients sometimes, but then also especially from family members um, and friends of, we know that this is something that 
has been a struggle for a long time, even uh, even with medication. Unrelenting is. It's just a great word. It, yeah. It's a it's a tough illness. So I think the implications are that if you're on sublocade, and I didn't see in the package insert that this was time limited. Maybe I just didn't read far enough. Maybe I didn't look closely enough. Uh, but my feeling is that this doesn't have that same kind of, hey, you can get people on it and it will transition people from opioid use disorder into never ever thinking about opioids again. That was my impression, right or wrong, of uh, uh, the, the hope of, of Suboxone when it came out. But I think Sublocate is somewhat different. This is now a, a long-term treatment yeah. that's for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I think the importance of that is um is trying to destigmatize it. Is it's easy to say, oh, I want to use a medication to help with my dependence, but then I can be off of it and have enough strength to overcome it. And I think we need to change the way we think about it. In that, it's okay to be on this medication. You know, this is a medication that, just like a diabetic or somebody with hypertension is okay, going to be. I'm going to jump in and say, not a diabetic, a person with diabetes. A, sorry, a person with diabetes <laughs> and a person with hypertension. Um, <laughs> You know, it's a medication that you need, and and that's okay. And I, you know, I think if we have that idea of even if it's a lifelong treatment, that's okay. You know. Yeah. And I and I think uh, that withdrawal syndrome, I think that's going to be a bear for people to try and come off, and that's probably something that needs to be very clear up front. The other thing that we probably need to talk about is serotonin syndrome. Yeah. So some of the adverse effects of sublocade, um, one of them is serotonin syndrome. So. It's not a contraindication that you can't be on uh, a serotonergic medication and also be on sublocade, but it is something for a prescriber to be aware of and, and looking for signs and symptoms of that. Um, in addition, sublocade is highly metabolized in the liver, and so any sort of uh, hepatic disease, um, I think it's, it's cautioned in moderate hepatic disease and contraindicated and severe, and it's something that you want to check LFTs pretty regularly when you're on sublocade. So I show that it is uh, don't use in moderate to severe hepatic impairment. Okay. So I, I could have written that down incorrectly. In any yeah. case, the idea of monitoring uh, hepatic impairment closely is important, and along those lines, metabolized by 3A4. So right. uh, if I recall correctly, our antifungals um, are going to change your area under the curve of the medication and probably means that the, if, if I understood correctly in the PI, you can prescribe 300 every month. Uh, it does have that allowance in the, in the PI, but I think anytime you have a 3A4 um, inducing agent, you, you may want to either check blood levels and go there or go there automatically and check blood levels. Um, so that would be one of the areas where you'd want to be very careful and talk to patients about. I think grapefruit juice does that too, right? Yeah, I think especially when you're kind of going through the induction process and figuring out what, what how, how, much, how many milligrams can the patient tolerate and, you know, I think it's important to be aware of all of those 3A4. Three, three, a, um, three, a, 3A4. Uh, <laughs> drug drug interactions there. Drug, drug interactions. Interestingly enough, and, and along those lines, when you talk about induction, my experience was that anytime I was prescribing over that 16 milligrams per day, I felt like I was probably costing the patient too much money or those uh, extra pills were being diverted. So I, I think 16 really, based on most of the data that we have, um, 
along the lines of what we were talking about before with pupillary response and uh, reflex responses. It's a it's a molecule that has a ceiling, right? Yeah, and I I saw uh, you know I think what I saw is you never want to go above twenty four milligrams in a day, um, and I think depending if some people are very very dependent on opioids and have very high tolerance, you may go above that sixteen milligram because they may still be feeling uh, withdrawal effects from it. Um, and I and that. Again, this is more experiential than data. My experience was it, there were never enough pills when somebody was highly dependent, and that that was perhaps as emotional as it was physiological. Definitely. Yeah. And my goal was to very quickly move to that 16 milligram dose because all the data I saw again said almost all of our patients are going to be. Uh, there's no. It's it's a partial antagonist. It, the the dose response curve caps out really at about 16 milligrams. Right. Yep. Uh, serotonin syndrome, hepatic uh, 3A4. One other thing that uh, comes up a little bit, I tell my patients you will not be using opioids again for pain control. Yeah, which is a hard thing to hear. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these people aren't you know, actively seeking, I mean, some of them are, but I think a lot of people aren't actively seeking drugs to make them feel really high and disassociated and withdrawn. I mean, a lot of these people have developed dependencies because they were prescribed opiates for pain, and a lot of them still have pain. And so it's having discussions about other pain management therapies that aren't opiates, and I imagine that they'd be receptive to them if they're seeking out MAT for opioid dependence. My impression is that Suboxone can provide some pain relief because it does have, uh, again, we're talking about mu receptor here. Um, it's not profound, and in the instance of a traumatic injury, you still aren't going to get, you're not going to get any benefit from an opioid treatment. No, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, buprenorphine was used before it was approved for medication-assisted therapy, it was used for pain, you know, so it's still, it's a therapeutic for pain, but it doesn't come close to what's Percocet. Percocet or fentanyl or things that are going around now. And those molecules will not bind to the mu receptor because of the uh, binding affinity of buprenorphine for that receptor, right? right? So to be aware of. I asked you before we did this podcast, I said something along the lines of, Hey, Alex, did you learn anything from your preparation for these two podcasts? And I was not expecting a yes necessarily, or even an em- an emphatic yes, and yet you threw down pretty hard on that question with a good solid yes. Tell me what you learned from preparation for the two podcasts and how it would influence your prescribing. Yeah, I think that preparing for these podcasts really gave me an opportunity to dive into, I mean, I was really interested in, in the dosing scheduling and the indications because um, I'm a rising fourth year student getting ready to start residency in a year and I want to be aware of what are the tools that I can use to treat my patients. And so this preparing for these podcasts, I think I was able to delve into the history of the opioid crisis, which I knew only a little about. But especially preparing for this podcast, I was really able to go into what is buprenorphine, how does it interact with the mu opioid receptors, 
when is it indicated, what's the dosing regimens, and I'm sure I've only scratched the surface, but it's still something that I feel like I got a lot out of. This topic was big. Huge. It doesn't seem like this changed your ability to prescribe the medication. I think it gave you more insight into how you might more effectively prescribe this. How would you more effectively prescribe Supplicate? Yeah, so I think one of some of the big takeaways um, in what are, what are the safe ways to prescribe Sublocade is I think you have to be, I mean, as you always should be, forthright with your patients. So treating Sublocade as a chronic med- medication, you know, a maintenance medication, um, and really outline the importance of being on this medication for a long haul. Because I think that one of the things that's hard is when you're dealing with something like addiction or dependence, it's easy to have these little, you know, flickers of, I need to quit this, I need to quit this. But a craving is intense. A craving is, you know, unrelenting, as we've, as we've said. And so really talking about how this is a long-term therapy and being very open with your patients that it's going to require frequent drug testing, you know, fre- frequent um, out-of-clinic therapy and social and family support. I think those are the big underutilized and sometimes maybe underspoken aspects of medication-assisted therapy. I like that. Um, that is that your takeaway, would you say, from this podcast? Yeah, I'd say. I want to add one other uh, part to what you said, and that is that uh, to be able to prescribe Sublocade, not only do you have to have the Data 2000 waiver, but you also need to have the REMS, uh, you need to complete the REMS training for that. And if you're going to give the injection, otherwise you can prescribe the medication and send somebody to a, a uh, injection location, right? Correct. I think yeah. that's the only detail that we had talked about before the podcast that, that we didn't bring up. Yeah. Uh, you are now done with this rotation. We're going to uh, sit down and have an evaluation next about your time on the rotation. We've talked about that a little up to this point, mm-hmm. about the strengths that you brought to the rotation and how they help you be better at the psychiatric aspect of family care, family medicine, right? We'll, we'll do that next. I have enjoyed having you on the rotation, Alex, and uh, thank you. I've enjoyed it as well, yeah. On that note, team out. Team out.